Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Let's look at our announcements. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Nehemiah 9:33. Tonight, video series on Samson continues, 6 p.m. Finger foods as usual. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Andrea's number. We've got a correction there on that on the numbers there in the bulletin. Harvest party. That's this Saturday, 28th, and it says 4 to 8 p.m. We're moving that back. It's going to be 3 to 7 p.m. So make that change, 3 to 7. Might shoot that out on the prayer chain, too. Thanks. <clears throat> Archery, slingshots, basketball, and a bonfire. Grill out with meats provided. Bring your beverage and side dish to pass. Um, include the dishes you're bringing. Um, our guests, of course, will be Dean and Kathy Birch. And then Dean uh, will be uh, speaking on Sunday, the following day. And there will be a catered dinner for $6 per person. The sign-up sheet is on the helps board. That's the one right outside of this door here. And today is the last day to sign up. And, of course, there will be no evening service. Thanks to our deacons. Thank you very much. All the work. It's a lot of work. Did you see the pictures of the lift here? All the, all the guys that aren't afraid of heights. Are up in the lift and the trees trimmed and the paints on and that's a tremendous amount of work. Thanks, guys. Um, one more that's not in your bulletin. A new Sunday school class will be coming for students in the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Stay tuned for more details. So, new Sunday school class beginning soon. Seems like I've forgotten something. Anybody want to remind me what it is? I guess I got maybe all of it. Okay, then. Our scripture for meditation, Psalm 119, read verses 137 through 144.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us. George, would you open for us? Thanks. Father God, we thank you so much for the day and uh, for your goodness to us, Lord. We come before you asking again that your word goes forth with both power and also, Lord, with the ability to change our hearts and minds and the way we think. Father, we must rely upon you to make the difference in our life because of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would use your word this day to help us see, Lord, that indeed you have called us with a heavenly calling for a purpose. Guard us, Lord, we pray, from Satan's wiles. Uh, protect us from his lies and help us to see the truth of your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless our time in your house and our time together that we may serve you and please you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Will you take your brown hymnal and turn to number 271 in the brown? 271.
Terry, wow. Hand up before she sat down. Terry has a song this morning. 483. 
Our scripture reading this morning is from Nehemiah, chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 36 and 38, and then mercifully hopping over to chapter 10 and reading 28 and 29. So if you'll stand with me, we'll read those verses. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave to our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produced. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Now over to 10 and 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and their sons and their daughters, who are able to understand all these now join their brothers in the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. I ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 369. 369. Does anyone know this song? The look on his face made me think that we didn't know. I'm struggling.
Our scripture text is from Nehemiah 9, and we'll also be in chapter 10 a little bit. In our, in our last study of Nehemiah, we learned that immediately following the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles according to the law, the Israelites called for a solemn assembly to remember the mercies of the Lord and to reflect upon their disobedience. What they recalled was the mercies of God in spite of their sin. That's a good thing to keep in mind. And they praised God for four interventions in their lives. Number one, they praised God for being the eternal creator. Not one with his creation, but above his creation, separated from it. Do you know that all the other religions of the world view God as little more than a deified human being who can be manipulated by man? It's pure idolatry. They worshipped him as creator. Secondly, they praised God for choosing them as the people of God and committing to them to be their God. Beginning with Abraham. But why Abraham? I mean, did you ever think about that? We look at all those scriptures which speak of the deplorable state Israel was in before God chose them. And God just reached down chose one of the pagans named Abraham and from him made a great nation. So the church, the body of Christ, consists of sinners chosen by God before the creation of the world destined for adoption. Thirdly, they praise God for his deliverance and salvation. For his deliverance and salvation. Election, brethren, is not salvation. It is the decree of God to save. But God must move from intent and from design to completion. Israel was actually given safe passage through the Red Sea. Led to freedom from Egyptian bondage. Great picture. Christian churches led through the Red River of the blood of Christ. And gain safe passage to freedom from the slaver of sin and destruction. And then number four, they praise God for their physical and spiritual sustenance during the wilderness sojourn. They had manna to eat, water to drink, quail to feed their bodies. Their clothing did not wear out. Their bodies did not get sick. Their shoe leather never wore out. And they had the law of God to feed their souls. So God took care of them spiritually and he took care of them physically. To these praises, the Israelites added the confession of their sins and therein magnified the forgiveness and the mercy and the patience, and the fidelity and the abounding love of God uh, towards them. Having realized their sin against this good and loving God, today's text brings us to the oath or promise which these people made to God in affirmation 
of their pledged loyalty to him in distinction from their forefathers whose sins brought the nation into captivity. Mighty transformation. And so I've entitled the message, God, I promise. I promise. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for seeing in the lives of the Israelites, and in this case, the younger Israelites, the descendants of those that failed you. Yet this younger generation followed after you and uh, entered into the promised land with great hopes and aspirations and worship of God. We pray the same for our younger generations. May they not repeat the sins of the fathers and the mothers, our sins, Lord, but may they progress and sincerely desire to live a godly life empowered by the Spirit of God, bringing the Word of God to bear in all aspects of their lives. Save who we will today, work with your spirit in our sinful hearts. Bring conviction of sin and repentance too. Grant us faith, the faith we don't have, the repentance we don't want to give. And may you be praised and honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at a subject today in Nehemiah, in which I have entitled, God, I promise. You ever make any promises? Promises to God? The first thing I point out in the bulletin outline there is the serious nature of an oath. The Bible does make allowances for oaths and vows to be taken before God, but in so doing, it is careful to lay out the sober repercussions of such a decision. For example, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 and following says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because... You made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now that's a very insightful text. I want you to note some of the key elements of this passage. Number one, if you make a vow to the Lord, you had better be quick to keep it. No delay, no stalling. Secondly, if you make a vow to God... God will hold you to it. You will not be left off the hook. Thirdly, if you fail to keep your vow, you will be guilty of sinning against God and will reap the consequences of such willful disobedience and there will be consequences. And fourthly, the reason for this strict enforcement is that you didn't have to make the vow to God. Well, that that's, seems reasonable. God didn't require it of you. You volunteered the oath. You spoke with your own lips. God didn't put the words in your mouth. We're so used to fudging on things with people. You don't do that with God. 
By the way, Ecclesiastes 5 gives some additional light on the subject. Vows. Solomon begins by discussing what he considers the speech of a fool. Ecclesiastes 5. And he says in verse 2, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You're on the earth. So let your words be few. The idea here is that God is transcendent. He's in the heavens above us, not only geographically, but above us in knowledge and power. Therefore, God does not need us to inform him of anything. You ever hear people pray in their their prayers? They keep telling God what's going on in their lives and what's going on in our country and There's something kind of wrong about that because God knows already what's going on. Verse 4 and following, Solomon continues, When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you to sin. Do not protest to a temple messenger. Oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. Wow. Stand in awe of God. You know, people think... Um, They think they can snow God with their words, just like they snow other people. And we're dealing with a being here that knows all things, and he reads the heart, and he reads the conscience. The scriptures add some new elements to the Deuteronomy passage. For example, In Psalm 14, verse 1, David says, God considers a person a fool who makes a vow and doesn't keep it. By the way, the Bible uses the word fool to describe an unbeliever. It's not talking about somebody who's silly, foolish. It's talking about someone who is an unbeliever. It's the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. That's how the Bible uses the word fool. So when it says God considers a person a fool who makes a vow and doesn't keep it, he's saying God considers that person to be an unbeliever. Wow. Secondly, God takes no pleasure in fools. His anger is aroused against fools and he will destroy the work of their hands, the Bible says. Thirdly, Vows are often spoken in rash moments with no thought as to the consequences. So let your words before God be both guarded and few. Good counsel from the word of God. Think before you speak. Don't we say that to kids sometimes when we're trying to teach them? Hey, did you just hear the words that came out of your mouth to your sister? Think before you speak. 
Oh, and by the way, the Bible says you're never going to be released from a vow by saying, oh, my vow was a mistake. Too bad. Too bad. Oh, and number five, in all that we do, but especially with regard to commitment we make to God, let us stand in awe of God. Wow. I bear. I never thought of Val so seriously as that. But there it is. Oh, and when we come to the New Testament, Jesus likewise gives some precautions with regard to promises we make to God. So here's some more news. Matthew 5, verse 33 and following. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oaths, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. And I just read some of those texts from the Old Testament. So Jesus is referring to them. Now he goes on. But I tell you, don't swear at all. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's pretty serious. The cultural context of this day that Jesus was speaking about was the over-abuse of the law of vows by the religious leaders of the day who thought it was the mark of piety to swear oaths for every little matter they pledged to do. Well, I swear to you that I'll meet you at the corner and we'll go shopping on Monday morning. Well, I swear to you that we'll go out in the woods and have a time of prayer together. Well, I swear to you. That's what was going on. And it got so ridiculous that the ordinary common commitments men made to one another were sealed with oaths. And so Jesus was saying, just learn to be men and women of integrity so that when you say yes to someone, Everybody knows that you will carry through with your decision. And if you say no to someone, that will be the end of the discussion. Can't we just be people that are that honest? My yes means yes. My no means no. But this was not the total prohibition against oaths and vows because we know that Paul took a vow... Before going to Jerusalem, he shaved his head as a token thereof. But from Jesus' viewpoint, being a person who has the reputation for speaking the truth is far better than having a preface every having to preface everything you say with a vow. Well, I promise, well, I promise, well, I promise. How tiring would that become? The right of Hebrews suggests there's one area. One area where oaths are acceptable. He says, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Hebrews 6, verse 16. You ever get into a conversation with someone and you just know they don't believe? (laughs) They don't believe what you're saying. They think you're trying to pull the wool over their eyes. They think you're trying to deceive them or trick them and so on. Well, 
the writer of Hebrews says, that's the time, a good time, to take an oath. As God is my witness, I'm telling you the truth. And he says, that's the end of all arguments. This, I believe, is the key to unlocking the meaning of our text. With all the restrictions on oaths in the Bible, the warnings the promise of God's judgment if the vow was not fulfilled, the caution against making promises you can't keep and of trying to weasel out of them by saying, oh, it was a mistake. Why would these Israelites, under Nehemiah's leadership, bind themselves with a curse and an oath, I'm reading scripture, to follow the law of God given through Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord? Chapter 10, verse 29. Why would they do that? Why would they make what they call a binding agreement, putting, putting it in writing with the seals of their spiritual and government leaders affixed to it? Chapter 9, verse 38. They all signed. <coughs> Why in chapter 10, <coughs> verse 30, <coughs> excuse me, 30 and following. <clears throat> Why did they make a list of commitments to God? Preface by the words, <clears throat> we promise. <clears throat> we promise. Don't they know <clears throat> what they are doing if they default on the word? that they had just spoken. Are they speaking too quickly and therefore foolishly? Have they forgotten to guard their mouth when speaking to the Lord? We promise. <clears throat> well, none of these things are true of these people. They have thought out things completely and their assessment is given in chapter 9, verse 34 and following. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Skipping down verse 35. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. And what is more, verse 37 indicates that the present generation now living in the land pays heavy tribute to the ruling Persian monarchs, they say, because of our sins. Because of our sins. So you see there's a credibility problem here with the people of God and their relationship to God. In their past, their leaders thumbed their noses at the requirements of God's word. They took from God all of his blessings, but they gave no faithful service in return. Chapter 9, verse 37. They were takers but not givers. 
They were users of God and for their own selfish ends. What could this new generation say that would convince God that they were sincere in determinations to obey the word of God? They could say, probably did say, well, you have our word on it. We'll obey. But their word isn't worth the breath it takes to speak it. Their history was one of broken promises, deceptive lies. And when people suffer from a credibility problem, the oath or vow is employed as a last-ditch effort to convince the hearer of the sincerity and the truthfulness of what is promised. As God is my witness, I promise. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 17. The oath confirms what is said, and it ends the argument. Wow. So I ask each of us this morning, are, are we people who have a credibility problem with God? What promises have you made to him that you have not kept? What vows have you taken before him which you now ignore? Have you claimed exemption on the basis that you now see that your words were a mistake? Oh, no, I shouldn't have said that, Lord. It was a mistake. That's not going to fly. If we are not men and women of truth, our word will mean nothing. We will say, yes, but everyone else will know that we mean, uh, maybe, depending on the circumstances. If we say no... Many will feel confident that with a little persuasion, we can be convinced to change our mind. Maybe to yes. Do you know that politics in our country thrives on the yes that means maybe and the no that can be turned to a yes? All you have to do is listen to the news. And sadly, the business of the world and family life in America fare no better. People are such liars and cheats and double dealers and underhanded manipulators that no one can be trusted to carry through with what they say. And that's a sad commentary on our country. But though all the world lies through its teeth when it speaks, this should not be in the Church of Christ. By word, by action, by body language, by tonal inflection, we should always convey the truth and nothing less. Our God is the author of truth, but the devil is the author of lies. John 8, verse 44. He was a liar from the beginning, says Jesus, of the devil. 
So, if we are liars in disguise, we are also infidels in disguise, whose words betray our true loyalty to Satan, not to Christ. If this is true of us today, then let us be repentant today. You see, we see this with the new generation of Israelites in our text. They knew, this new generation knew, they had a credibility problem with God. And so to counteract that negative image, they took an oath, they signed a written agreement from their leaders right down to the common man that henceforth they would, verse 29 of chapter 10, obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord. put their name on the paper. Do you know this morning as as a professing Christian, you too are under the commands, the regulations, and the decrees of the Lord? You are. I am. You're not your own. You belong to Christ. He bought you with his own shed blood. We're therefore people under authority, under the authority of King Jesus. You're not the master of your destiny like the world says. Your life is not yours to do with as you please. You have obligations to fulfill. God is not looking for you to wow him with your words, but to serve him with your lives. And if you will do this, the blessing of the Lord will be upon you. But if not, a curse, chapter 10, verse 29, is waiting in the wings. By the way, the curse need not be anything more than to allow you to reap what you sow. No big black thing that God sends your way. It's just you send and you reap what you sow. He doesn't intervene. Sin is debtor to no man. Sin pays its wages and its wages is death. Why will you die? Repent of your willfulness. Seek God's spirit is the one who will enable you to obey Christ as Lord. Now, what are the promises that these Israelites made to God on this occasion, and what message do they convey to us as the people of God? Well, chapter 10, verse 30. We promise, I'm reading scripture. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. We promise no intermarriage. This problem of intermarriage, spoken about in the book of Ezra, chapter 9, where he speaks of the people around us, And he defines them in terms of, here it goes, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. 
That's a lot of ites. Not Israelites. Ezra's making a point. All of these nations that he just cited were idol worshippers, all of them pagans in their beliefs and practices, which included everything from sexual orgies to sacrificing their own children in the fire to their gods, to their idols. Wow, what a terrible thing to do. How can two people with such diverse spiritual views on life unite in marriage? Are you not asking for your faith to be compromised and your life to be drawn into sinful temptations when your spouse is a stranger to God and when he or she has no inclination to obey the principles of the Bible? One question People should ask, will my children be brought up in the church of Christ? Another, will you even be faithful in your church attendance when your spouse wants to use Sunday as play day? Well, this is my play day. I worked six days out of the week. Sunday's my play day. Will you be able to carry on your witness of faith and honesty at tax time when your spouse thinks of nothing bad about cheating the government? On your tax forms. Will you approve the language that's used in your home? The movies your children watch. The discipline or lack thereof. The friends who frequent your home. The way the money is spent. The place of vacation that you're going to go to. Every aspect of life is connected to your spouse when you tie the knot in marriage. So you better be yoked with a person of like faith. Now we do have mixed marriages in our day. By mixed, I mean a believer married to a non-believer. But what happens is couples start out as two unbelievers and God saves one and not quite yet the other guy. So they end up with a mixed marriage. But it didn't start out that way. Or it shouldn't have been. Nehemiah says in chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Oh, that means Nehemiah is a man of history. Let me read on. Among the many nations, there was no king like him, like Solomon. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. And even he was led into sin by foreign women. He 
He goes on, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? I can hear it now. Young people say, but I'm lonely. I'm so lonely. There is no loneliness for the believer like the abandonment of God. People say, well, I have sexual needs. There's no passion like that of an angry God who considers your intentional mixed marriage as infidelity to him. Nehemiah 13, verse 27. Wow. Before you marry the man or woman of your desires, you're already wed to Christ. Do you know that? Already. And marrying in the Lord keeps the fidelity intact because both of you and your spouse are motivated to walk with the Lord and you're animated by the same Holy Spirit to do as God commands. How can two walk together unless they agree? The prophet says. <laughs> Secondly, these Israelites promised to observe the Sabbath as the worship day for God. As the worship day for God. Verse 31. In your great mercy you didn't put an end to them to abandon them for you are a gracious and a merciful God. The New Testament knows nothing of specific regulations set down for the day of the worship of God. Though the church by mutual consent agreed to meet on the first day of the week the day of Christ's resurrection. So that's Sunday. That's why we meet on Sunday. But there isn't any command. You can't point to any scripture that says, Thou shalt meet on the first day of the week. But having said that, we do find in the New Testament that we are charged to meet regularly for worship, not forsake the collective gathering of the body of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 25. When we meet, we're to pray and give ourselves attentively to the preached word of God. We're to dress modestly, be prepared for good works. The men, not the women, are to conduct the preaching services of the church. First Timothy 2, I didn't invent it, you can read it. When we are gathered together, we are to bring gifts for God's work, which include a view towards those in need, 1 Corinthians 16. The church is also the place where various people serve with their respective gifts given by the Spirit to benefit the entire community of saints. 1 Corinthians 12, you can read about those gifts. All things are to be conducted with decorum and order. 1 Corinthians 14, there's chapters in the Bible written about this stuff. So you see, 
It isn't like God has left us to our own devices to determine how or when we will worship him. With this in mind, it seems to be rather appalling, a misunderstanding when you think about it. To use the Lord's Day, to treat the Lord's Day like any other day of the week when it comes to commercial enterprise. These Israelites understood, and we should too, that the world does not honor Sunday as a worship day. Look at verse 31. It says, The neighboring peoples bring merchandise and grain to sell on the Sabbath. Nothing new under the sun, right? (laughs) This was going on back then. The neighboring peoples bring merchandise and grain to sell on the Sabbath. We would say, well, Kmart, Myers, Walmart, they're all open on Sunday just as readily as Monday through Saturday. There's no recognition of Sunday as a day of rest, certainly not as a day of worship. It's simply business as usual. Sadly, many Christians, through their patronizing of such stores, are also saying business as usual. Sunday's not the day to do your grocery shopping, mow your lawn, wash your car, build your deck, plow your garden. God has given you six days to do those things. He asks you to obey. No, he tells us to obey and to devote one day in seven to his worship. Now I realize that we get ourselves into predicaments by our forgetfulness or our over-busyness. So if you're almost out of gas, or if you forgot to buy the gallon of milk, by all means, buy what's necessary to feed your family and drive to church. I'm talking about honoring Sunday no more than Maybe your pagan neighbor does next door who doesn't think twice about using Sunday as his main day for shopping and playing. When you can shop on Sunday afternoon or work on home project, but you can't make it to evening church, there's something wrong with that. What's wrong are priorities. By the way, the last promise of this chapter is this. These Israelites said, we will not neglect the house of our God. Lastly, I want you to note that this new generation promised to meet all the needs of the temple worship and to be careful to bring the tithe into God's house. The temple needs included the showbread, verse 33, the grain offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings, also verse 33. How were these things to be provided? Did the priests have their own livestock, their own farms? No. 
Each Israelite paid a third of a shekel each year, verse 32, which raised enough money to buy the things used for the offerings. The wood for the offerings was provided by casting lots to determine when each family would bring a load of wood to the temple, verse 34. No one was exempt. This is just the practical day-to-day operations supplied by the people themselves in worshiping. Can't have sacrifices without animals. Can't have burnt offerings without wood. They further promised to bring the first of their crops, the first of their fruits, and even of their firstborn sons and livestock. Verse 35, 30, verse 36 thereby signifying that God was first, first, first in their actions. God first. The tithe is mentioned in verse 37 as that which supplied the needs of the Levites. And in verse 39, by implication, the needs of the priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers, the people that worked to keep the temple operative. Good place to ask, is God first in your life? This is the essence of what the entire law of God commands us. Let me read it for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. God first, God first, God first. Is what Christ is saying, Matthew 22 verse 37 in Mark 10 he told a young man who boasted of his obedience to the law of God one thing you lack young man one thing you lack go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven then come follow me and we read at this the man's face fell he went away sad Because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and he said. How hard it is. For the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And it's hard brethren. Because their hearts are governed by greed and covetousness. When it comes to their possessions. I heard a man on the news just this last week. I have what I have because I earned it. And I'm not about to lose what I've earned. What I've made with the sweat of my own face. Strength of my own hands. Well, that's what people think. They're self-made men. So I ask again, is God first in your life? Your practice of financial stewardship will answer for you if you give of your material substance in a meager way, not because your income is meager, but because you have a stingy heart, then you shouldn't be boasting that God is first in your life. God cannot be first in your life when you have money to spend on CDs and pizza and electronic equipment and clothes and furniture and you only have $5 for the Lord on Sunday.
the Israelites gave to God of the first of their substance with every selfish bone in their body cried out, no, no, me first, me first, me first, me first. But they went against that cry. And they said, no, it's going to be God first. And what did their money go for? Verse 37. He will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. The Levites in turn were to bring a tenth of the tithe. So now we got a tithe of the tithe as their contribution to God's work. Verse 38. This money was then distributed for the care of the Levites, the priests, the gatekeepers, the singers who stayed and served in the sanctuary. Verse 39. Well, the church doesn't have priests and gatekeepers and Levites and professional singers on staff, but it does have pastors and youth pastors and choir directors and janitorial staff and missionaries all involved in one way or another in the outreach of the gospel of Christ to our society and to our world at large. How do they get that support? How do they carry on their ministry? Through the tithe. Paul Gleaning, the principle, gives the New Testament interpretation I'll give it for you, 1 Corinthians 9.14. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Pretty straightforward. I can tell you from experience that it's extremely hard to give the proper attention to ministry when a pastor has to work secular employment. And of course, I've done that through my life. Visitation suffers, counseling suffers. Preaching preparation suffers. General programs of the church lack direction, guidance, because the pastor is burning the candle at both ends. Sometimes in small situations, small church situations, that's necessary. Even if we were to think of our extended ministers, our missionaries, they're going, they're staying in the field of service. And we're going to have Dean with us here another week serving in different places of the world. They can't do that apart from a stewardship of God's people at home. When you and I do not give generously to missions, it says something about the priorities of our lives. Some of you may be worried about your retirement, whether or not uh, you've saved enough to live out your years in financial security. When we rob God to feather our own nest, God warns us. Give careful thought to your ways. I'm reading scripture. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You work hard. This is what he's saying. You work hard, but you have little to show for it. He goes on. You eat, but you never have enough. So he's saying, your appetite is more, is more, is more. It's never satisfied. There's no peace. He goes on to say, you drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're never warm. So he's saying, you're not comforted by what you own. 
You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Who does that? It's talking about the money being lost. He goes on. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What he's saying is you expected that nest egg to just grow and grow and in the end to provide you with some really handsome retirement, but it has turned out to be a whole lot less than what you expected. Why, why, why? We might ask God why. And God answers. Here's his answer. I'll read it for you. What you brought home, I blew away. So God wouldn't do that. He says he did. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 and following. Because of misplaced priorities. It was me first, me first, me first, not God first. And may I say that God has hundreds of ways to blow away your inheritance. Natural catastrophe, floods, tornadoes, fire. Boy, we've seen a lot of that in our country this year. Physical calamity, disease, surgery, chronic health problems. Medical care doesn't come for free, not in our country. Many of you are sitting here, you know what I'm talking about. There could be vocational upsets, layoffs, loss of your job. A disability. Family crisis, divorce, death, a wayward child, on and on it goes. In the life of the Christian, none of these things are coincidental. God first, God foremost, God forever. That's the way it should be. This is what these Israelites promised God. And they are promises worth our own commitment as well. God in my marriage. God in my business dealings. God in my worship. God in my stewardship. God in my family and over my family. God first. And if you will put God first, you will never, never be the loser as a result. He will bless your commitment to him and he'll see you through the hard years and the sick years and the lean years because he senses, he knows that you love him. And he, as the heavenly father, loves you, his child. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of God. We're not so faithful. We fail thee all the time. 
Lord, we're so thankful and so appreciative of the fact that you have made pledges and promises to us. I like this text in Nehemiah where these people in good Christian conscience say to you, uh, God, I promise. I promise. We ought to weigh heavily our words that we say to God. We made promises. We need to keep them. And if we don't keep them, there will be consequences. But Lord, we would prefer to keep them. And where we have failed you, we're asking for your forgiveness. Help us to be a church, a people, who are known by the reality that when we say yes, we mean yes, and when we say no, we mean no. We're people of truth, not deception, not lies, not falsehood. Thank you for the gospel. It comes into our lives with the purity of Jesus Christ, rebukes us for our sin, but then on top of that, it shows us the forgiveness of our sins through the blood and sacrifice of our blessed Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity, the Red Hymnal, number 94.
a little bit. He loves us from eternity past all the way to eternity end. You are not a mistake. You were saved on purpose. <clears throat> God has brought light and life from the gospel of Christ into your life. And let me tell you, that's something to rejoice about, to praise the Lord about, and to pray that God will do that for our family members and our friends that they too might enjoy the joy and forgiveness of God for forgiven sins. Thank you one and all. We are dismissed.